Everybody doing okay? Good. That extra hour of sleep makes a big difference, doesn't it? I woke up this morning and was like, why don't I just do that every night? I don't know why I just don't go to sleep earlier. Um, also, does anyone else, did everyone get enough candy last night? Uh, I didn't get to go trick-or-treating with the kids, but, well, the houses, my kids said that the houses, there wasn't a lot of houses doing it, but the ones that were, you get all that candy and there's not a lot of kids, so they just give each kid just mountains of candy. And um, I don't know if any other parents do this. We, we have the mandatory, like, we get a cut thing, you know, like, because we're the parents, you know, like, we, just, we deserve a cut. And so by the, t- <laughs> by the time I got home last night, they had already, like, like, whittled out my cut, you know. And it's always the ones that, that kids don't like, but adults like, like Almond Joys, you know. I love Almond Joys. Yeah, that's all the, like, 40-year-olds in the room were like, yeah, Almond Joys, you know. Heath Bars. It's like all the 60 and ups. <laughs> Love that toffee. <laughs> That's what Greg keeps in his office. I go in Greg's office all the time and I'm like, hey, you got any Heath? And he's like, of course. He has a stash and we just eat Heath. But um, that's all the time. That's not just Halloween. That's like every Tuesday, you know? Hey, where's the Heath bars? So uh, awesome. Glad you guys are here. Thank you. Seriously, um, it's good to see you. We have been working through the book of Matthew. If you weren't here last week, man, it, it, it's... Weekends like last weekend are hard for me, where you kind of have to like teach a message that's just, it's just tough. And, um, but where we're at in the gospel of Matthew, it's just, it's kind of a tough spot. And where Jesus is, if you haven't been here, is Jesus is in the last week of his life. He's entered into Jerusalem. He's gone into the temple and he has started to argue with the religious leaders. Um, you have the far right wing, which would have been the Pharisees, the far left wing, which would have been the Sadducees. You have the scribes. You have a group called the Herodians. There are all these religious groups, and they kind of join forces, and they're trying to trick and trap Jesus, and, and they hate Jesus, right, as we're going to see even more so as we go in the gospel. But they've failed. At every attempt, they're failing, right, because Jesus can't be tricked. He can't be trapped, and so they keep failing, and so Jesus, at the end of chapter 22, he's done with them. And, and quite frankly, they're done with him too. They keep losing these arguments. So they're like, we're not going to try anymore. And Jesus is going to move on from them. So in chapter 23, he turns around to the crowd. He looks at this huge crowd of people that have been watching this whole interaction. He turns to his disciples. And man, in 23, chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus goes to town. He's, he's looking at the crowds and his disciples and he goes, let me tell you about these folks. Don't live like these folks. And he just starts hammering on these religious leaders, these hypocrites. They're, they're bad people, right? And Jesus goes to town on them. Where we stopped though last week was kind of mid-rant. I mean, Jesus is going off. And we stopped about, about midway through chapter 23, not quite midway through, maybe, maybe thir- one third of the way through. And we stopped on this one verse, verse 12, because it really stands out. Jesus says, those that exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted by God. That's a very, very important statement, especially in light of our culture right now. And we talked about last week that by definition, when we exalt ourselves, it's kind of the supreme authority. No one can tell me what to do. No one can tell me what's right and wrong. I make all my decisions. When we kind of exalt ourselves to that position... We're acting like a God. By, de- by definition, we're acting like a God. When no one can tell us anything, we can't learn anything from anybody, we, we think we're the supreme being, right? And so it was a tough weekend last week, but, but just basically addressing that question, do, have we tried to be God? 
And if we are, like, God's going to humble us. There's only space for one God in the universe, and it's not us. It's him, right? So we're going to be humbled by him. This week, I promise you, we're going to end on a positive note. Um, We're going to have to go through Jesus saying some pretty harsh things today, but we're going to get to a very positive note at the end of this lesson. But here's here's what we're going to talk about and, and focus on at the very, very end, okay? So you have to wait for it a little bit, but it's, it's, it's coming. God sometimes puts us through things and sometimes allows things to happen to us, not because he hates us, but because he's trying to get our attention because he loves us. I don't know if anyone else in the room has had to get kind of smacked around by God a little bit in their life. I have, right? And it's not because God doesn't love us. It's because God loves us very much. Any of you parents in the room, you understand this. Um, my oldest daughter's in the room today, and she's just a fantastic young woman. And I bet I've had to spank my daughter twice in her entire life. And one of them was because she was starting to run out into, into a parking lot, into traffic. And as much as I hated to, to hurt her, uh, she was going to die. And I think God sometimes does that for us. God doesn't like hurting us, but in order to keep us out of an area where we're in grave danger, where we can die, sometimes he has to let some things happen to us. Sometimes he has to even has to, has to do those things to us. But it's because he loves us, not because he doesn't love us, okay? So that's what we're gonna talk about a little bit today. So you should have got a notes handout when you came in. It has everything I'm gonna say in it. Everything will be on the screens. If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, uh, very handy. If you're old school like me and you still like pages and, and books, I'm in uh, the first book of the New Testament, chapter 23, starting at verse 13. And man, when I tell you, Jesus gets fiery today. He does. He gets very, very fiery. And everything I'm going to read to you today, straight from the mouth of Jesus himself, right? Direct quote right from him, okay? So I'm going to pray. We'll jump into this. And um, I think you'll enjoy this this second uh, half of this chapter because it's what Jesus just goes to town and it's pretty interesting to to read. So uh, let's pray and we'll see where God takes us, okay? Father, Lord, I love you. God, I thank you so much. Lord, I love this church. God, it's a good church, Father, good people. I pray that you bless the people in this room. Lord, I love that last song, and, and, and it just shakes me, God, because I, I pray, God, that you bless uh, the men and women in this room, their family, and um, their extended family, and their friends, their homes. God, keep your hand on them. Keep your hand on our church. Father, we don't just pray for our church, though. We pray for every single church in our city, God. Lord, we pray for our local government, our state government, our federal government, Lord, as We approach an election next week, God, however the chips fall. Father, I pray that we uh, are reminded that you're still on the throne. I pray, God, that civility reigns. I pray that peace reigns, God. I pray that you just keep your hand on all of our hearts, God, and help us to be the light, Lord. No matter how dark things get, God, we're called to be the light. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you, God. Pray that everything we do today that honors you and makes us better believers, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit, go back and break it down. Jesus is going to come out of the gate strong here, okay? Here we go. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in, and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. So what Jesus is doing here, I talked about this briefly last week, 
Jesus presents seven woes or warnings. Maybe that's a better way to say that. And the word woe there is literally like a righteous anger, right? Or a, a, a warning that if you keep going this direction, something catastrophic is going to take place. So imagine if you're sitting there at the edge of a cliff, a car is racing towards you and you're going, whoa, 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 go this way, right? If you keep going this way, it's going to be bad. Go that way. That's essentially what Jesus is doing. And there's going to be seven of them in this part that we're going to study today. So Jesus is pointing out that the selfish and hypocritical lifestyles of the religious leaders are going to lead to God's wrath, God's judgment, not a place you want to be, okay? So he's trying to warn them. Now, the first two woes are about misleading people, leading people in the wrong direction. So because the religious leaders were rebellious to the word of God, they said they followed it, but they didn't follow it, right? They were rebellious to it. And because they were hypocritical, Jesus says you are slamming the door of heaven in the faces of the people who want to enter into it. So people wanted to do the right thing. Not everyone, but a lot of people wanted to do the right thing, but they were being misled because the leaders walked in the wrong direction. Everyone that followed them walked in the wrong direction. Therefore, a lot of people didn't have a true relationship with God. This makes Jesus upset, right? There's a lot of responsibility on leadership. You got to walk the right direction because when you don't, a lot of people don't either. And he says that when you do this, you make people twice as fit for hell as you are. So here comes the kind of the beginning of the sassiness of Jesus that we're going to see today in the scripture. I mean that no disrespect for him, but we see it here. What he says to them is this. He goes, hey, you guys don't even very, you don't, you don't work very hard to make converts to your faith right? So you go over land and sea and you might win one person to God, but when you win that one person to God, you don't even teach them good theology. So you make them even more fit for hell than you are, right? And so theology matters. What we teach matters. What we believe matters. But we need to turn that in on ourselves, okay? And again, I'm not trying to be mean here today, but we have to ask the question, how many people have we won to the Lord? You know, making disciples and bringing people into the faith is not just a job for the pastor. It's for everyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus. We are to go out and make disciples, baptize, and teach. So first, we need to ask ourselves, how many people have I brought into the family of God? And when I have brought those people into the family of God, have I honored the word of God by how I did that? And if we're not teaching the truth, and if we're not teaching what the Bible says, we will actually leave people worse than when we found them. What does that mean? Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 12, a couple of chapters back, right? When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams looking for rest but doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's condition is worse than the first. What does that mean to us? What that means is this, is that if all we do is throw a big concert on the lawn and we baptize a couple hundred people, but we never disciple them or teach them, we have not done the great commission of Jesus Christ. What that means is this, if we bring people in, we get them to say a little prayer and we're like, woo, we're done, right? If we have not filled them up with the principles and teachings of the word of God, people will actually be in worse shape than when we first found them because the house has been cleaned, but because it hasn't been filled with anything, evil comes back and they are not prepared to deal with it. 
I upset some people recently because I, I said, you know, all these people were sharing on Facebook. Look, this guy's going city to city and he's having a concert and he's on Instagram live because your left hand has to know what your right hand is doing. And, and so he's on Instagram live and everyone's watching and baptize people in the street. Look at that. And I'm like, man, baptism is great. But what happens tomorrow? What happens when dude leaves town? Do they have a church to go to? Do they have a Bible in their hand? Who's going to disciple them? Who is going to teach them? Listen, we're called to baptize, disciple, and teach. But if we only baptize and we don't disciple and teach, doing one-third of what Jesus says is not doing what Jesus says. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? Corey, how dare you? I just want people to go to heaven, guys. So if we can baptize people, that's why we stopped doing baptisms at worship nights. Because it was just an emotional thing. Man, this music is great. i got to get baptized. We would rather you hear what baptism is. We would rather you be in the house of God so you have a place to land after you get baptized so we can disciple you, so we can teach you, so we can make sure that this doesn't happen, right? That's why we do those things. Okay, all right. Woe to you blind guides who say whoever takes an oath by the temple, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gold of the temple is bound by the oath. Blind fools. For which is greater, the gold of the temple or the temple that sanctified the gold? Also, whoever takes an oath by the altar, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gift that is on it is bound by that oath. Blind people. Look at all these exclamation points. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, the one who takes an oath by the altar takes an oath by it and by everything on it. The one who takes an oath by the temple takes an oath by it and by him who dwells in it. And the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of your mint, your dill, and your cumin, yet you have neglected the more important things of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you gulp down a camel. That is just straight up sarcasm. So the third and fourth warnings or woes are about legalism, about misusing the law. So Jesus chastised the Pharisees, the religious people, because they used the law as a replacement for having a relationship with God. It was more about following rules than it was about following God and having a relationship with him. They also put on a really, really good outward appearance, but the inside was dark and distant from God. Now, many of us in this room have come from legalism. You're very familiar with what that is. Now, if you're not familiar with what that is, let me tell you what it is. When rules and appearances become more important than authenticity in relationship, you have legalism. That's what legalism is. And again, many of us have been saved, not just by Jesus, but out of legalism. Thank God. So one of the things the Pharisees would do is they would swear by the temple. The Pharisees would make promises based on how elaborate and fancy their temple was. Essentially, they would say, we swear to God, we're going to do this for you. Look at how fancy our establishment is, right? Look, this proves that we will keep our word. But they didn't. They would break their promises. And what they were doing is they were using God's name in vain. I swear to God. But they had no intention of keeping that promise. Now listen, a promise is not a bad thing. Uh, I made a promise to my wife. I made a promise to my children. That's okay. As long as we do what we say we're going to do. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no, right? 
Just be consistent. If you say you're gonna do it, do it. They also valued the institution of God more than God himself. The Pharisees valued the temple. They, they valued the rules of the temple more than they valued connecting with God, more than they valued connecting with other people. They'd become legally accurate, but morally bankrupt. What it was is, is they would choose. They, they, were, they were very harsh, even if they were right. I've learned in the last couple of years that you can say the right thing the wrong way. For instance, um, I would dare say, I would say majority, if not all of us, are not pro-abortion. We're probably against abortion. Now, there's two different ways to deal with a topic like abortion. We can stand outside of a clinic and we can call 15-year-old girls who got pregnant baby killers. We can put big old uh, uh, fetuses that are covered in blood on stakes and we can show graphic imagery and we can yell things and, and, and spit on people. We can do it that way. Or we can support a wonderful organization like Portico here in town that rolls around with a mobile ultrasound unit and they take that 15 or 16 year old girl and they give her a free ultrasound and they show her the baby. Stats show that if you use that loving approach and show life versus death, that 80% of those women will choose not to have abortions. It's the most effective way of fighting abortion. That's why we give a ton of money to Portico. So you can say the right thing and you can say it the wrong way. See, we have to be careful. We have to be careful not only to be right, but to be ethical and to be moral with that rightness. So here's the thing. We cannot earn salvation. Even if we follow the rules to a T, it is by grace that we are saved. We don't do good works and then we're saved. We're saved by God's grace and then we're called to live obediently and do good works. Good works follow salvation. They don't, they don't come before it. We do not earn our salvation. Our obedient lifestyles is a response to being saved by the grace of God. Another thing that the religious leaders would do is they would, they would bend the rules to fit their particular situations. Not only did they break promises, they would pervert the laws to fit what they wanted. So they would teach things like tithing, right? Which I believe in tithing. But they would teach tithing because that's where their paycheck came from. That's how all the gold got stacked in the temple, right? We don't have like a room full of gold bullions or anything here. But anyways, that's, that's, that's how the finances came into the temple. So they taught tithing, right? But they didn't teach bigger things like justice. That's a big one. Mercy, faithfulness. So it was picking and choosing what things that, that fit their lifestyle and which things that they were uncomfortable with and they didn't want to talk about. Man, I'm just, we'll just go there today. It's like someone who's addicted to pornography looking at the gay community and saying how quickly they're going to hell. Well, that addiction, that, that, that's my sin, but it's not nearly as bad as that sin. That's a form of legalism, pointing fingers at everyone else for the things they're doing wrong, but we have this thing secretly, right, behind our closed doors that we struggle with. It's picking and choosing and not teaching the word in its totality. Sexual sin is sexual sin, right? But we've somehow elevated things because we're not doing those things. And legalism misses the heart of God. The heart of God is to love other people, the heart of God is to build a relationship with God. But when we focus more on rules and less on relationship, we miss the why. We don't explain why things are right and wrong. It's like if you're teaching your children, don't have sex until you're married. Just don't have sex. Sex is bad. Don't talk about sex. Like, like all sex is bad, right? And we just teach them these rules. Don't have sex until you're married. 
if we tell them that, but we don't explain why. The reason why you do that is because God doesn't want you to have an unexpected pregnancy and have to struggle with that and walk alone with the child. God doesn't want you to get a, a sexually transmitted disease. God doesn't want you to have to deal with the depression and, and loss of value that you feel for yourself because people have abused you and taken advantage of you. God wants the best for you. So if we can explain sex in that context, sex is not a bad thing. God wants it to be great and he wants it to be holy and he wants it to be between a man and a woman uh, exclusively for life and that, that's the best for you. So if we would explain the heart behind it, right? Why we have certain rules, why we have certain parameters, it makes a lot more sense. But what we forget is this. We think we have to change the behavior and then the heart will change. And that's backwards. You have to go to the heart first and when we touch the heart first, the actions will follow. Living obedient to Jesus follows falling in love with Jesus. But if you're just telling me to follow a bunch of rules, I'm going to find a way to wiggle my way out of those rules. But if I love someone, it's like when my wife and I got married, like the day after we got married, she didn't post up on the fridge, hey, here's the list and do's of don'ts, right? You have to take me out every Friday. You have to do this. You don't have to make a rule that says I have to take my wife out. I love taking my wife out because I love her. I don't have to have a rule that says I, I pray at this time every single day because I want to talk to him all the time, right? I love him. Behavior will follow a change of heart. It is not the church's job to make rules and rules and rules. It is the church's job to, to introduce people to Jesus Christ so he can touch their heart. And that's how life changes. That's how things look differently. And so Jesus turns it up a notch, right? He goes up to 11 right here. Jesus tells the religious leaders, that they focus on these lesser things, right? And they neglect the bigger things. Now, here's the thing. The lesser things are important too. No one wants to drink a gnat either. That wasn't so bad. No, you don't want to drink that either. But he says you focus so much on a small thing that you neglect this big thing. You strain out a gnat and you're drinking a camel. So that doesn't mean that things like giving aren't important or modesty. It's important to be modest. It's important to go to church. But when we teach rules without teaching the deeper message of Christ, justice, mercy, faithfulness, we have missed the point. We have completely missed the point. It's not just about coming to church on the weekend. It's about building community. It's about when the world falls apart, you have brothers and sisters with you. Teach the principles of community and people will come to church. That's what he's saying. Get the, the horse before the cart, right? Not the other way around. Okay, next part. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead in every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So that's what the fifth and sixth warning is about. Basically making sure that the outside and the inside line up so we're not hypocrites. So these woes focus on making sure that our, our outside persona, right, what we present to people is the same thing that's going on all the time within us. 
Now, Jesus isn't saying that what we present to people is, is not important. It's just like a clean cup. I love the example he uses. You remember back in the days when we could actually drink coffee here at the church? So imagine, you go up to the coffee bar, you get this cup and it is pristine on the outside. It just looks beautiful, right? Then you go to pour coffee in it and it still has the coffee from last week. It looks like caramel down there with like mold on top. You start to go, just think about that for a second. Let's all meditate on that for a second. Anyways, so you go to pour the coffee and you see that and you're like, oh, I don't wanna drink that, right? It looks so good on the outside, but the inside is disgusting. And so Jesus is saying, the most important thing is to first clean the inside. And then eventually the outside will follow, right? Eventually that'll come. And he even takes it even further and he uses the analogy of graves. This is so good. He says like when you walk to a really, really nice graveyard, and you see that the grass is perfectly manicured. You have this beautiful marble stone that has like a beautiful picture on it and this inscription on it. And maybe there's like a nice bench for people to sit and, and, and kind of think about their lost loved ones in this beautiful area. But if you dig down, you find out that there's dead bones down there. If you dig down, you find out that there's impurity in there. And isn't this why so many people have left the church? I'm not talking about this church, but I'm talking about the church, Right? I bet all of you in this story, all of you in this room have multiple stories about either yourself or someone that you've known, right? You walked up to the big fancy church, not the one with the brewery in the back, another one. You walked up to the big fancy church. It looks really, really beautiful from the outside. The yard looks great. You walk in and everyone's dressed to the nines and they get their smile on. Everyone's wearing their Sunday best. Everyone looks super sharp and super clean. No one's really that different from you. Looks really good. And then you find out that they always talk bad about each other. You find out they don't do anything for the community. You find out that they've been abusive. You find out that that guy on that big old stage doesn't live all the things that he's telling us to do. And it looked really, really pretty from the outside, from the curb. But when you walked in, you're like, this place is dead. It's not alive at all. Or you walk in and everyone acts like they're so righteous and then you work with them in the office on Monday and you're like, that guy's always a jerk. Man, that woman's like sleeping with a couple of different people in the office. It looked so good on Sunday, right? But then it didn't look the same on Tuesday. It didn't look the same on Wednesday or Friday night. And so you guys know that people see that. And when they see us looking so holy on one day and then living another way throughout the week, people step back and go, I don't wanna be a part of that. Is that what God is? Is that what being a Christian is? I don't want any part of that. That's what makes Jesus so angry. It's a bad representation of the church. And what it's about, it's about our true character. But we live in a culture, we've become masters of selling a persona that's not really us, right? We all know the angles and the lighting. We all know the filters. We all know how to present ourselves in a way that we hope no one really sees us in public. The stuff we write about ourselves, the algorithms that we fall into, we know how to sell ourselves pretty good. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with social media, there's nothing wrong with pictures, but we need to have a humble view of ourselves. And humble is not degrading. I'm not saying we all, all of our profile pics need to be like our double chin or something. No, this is the real me, right? No one wants to see that either, right? So, but <laughs> to be, I, we should do that as a challenge. Let's all do like double chin Facebook profile pic challenges. Let's see who goes first and I'll follow, okay? I'll do it today. Just tag me in it. No, I got your back. I'll do it right after you. Okay, anyways. So we need to be humble. What I'm saying is we need to live honestly all the time. 
Not just on, not just on social media, not just when people are watching. We need to have integrity all the time, even when people aren't watching. I believe Christians should be allowed to share their struggles. I don't think you should do it with everyone, but I think you should find three or four people that you trust and be like, listen, I struggle with this. Because the Bible says, confess your faults to each other, bear each other's burdens. That fulfills the law of Christ. I think we should do that. We should be able to celebrate our victories with, uh, with each other. The, the thing is this, we just need to be consistent. If whatever you post on Facebook is what you are all the time, that's great, that's fine. Be consistent. Be the same when no one's watching. Be the same when everyone is watching. Just be you and be what God wants you to be, right? Consistently, that's what Jesus is talking about. Okay, so the last woe is this, it is violence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophet's blood. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sins. Look at this. Jesus says, snakes, brood of vipers. How can, you, how can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I'm sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So all the righteous blood on earth will be charged to you, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I tell you, all these things will come on this generation. He was referring to those guys. So I didn't write this down, but I find it interesting. When we as individuals are, are we as a collective group of people, if we don't get a grip on our sin, it almost always leads to hatred and violence. It always leads to this. So what the religious leaders would do is they would build these huge elaborate monuments to the prophets of the past. And they would decorate them and make them look all pretty and they would say, if we were alive during the time, we wouldn't have had a part in the violence. We wouldn't have had a part in the shedding of the prophet's blood. What was ironic about that is as they were saying those things, they were plotting to kill Jesus. <laughs> so they already had murder in their heart. I wouldn't hurt anyone unless I disagree with them, right? That's kind of what they were saying. They already had murder in their heart. They were plotting to kill as they spoke these things. Of course, Jesus knows this. And Jesus says, well, fill up the cups of your ancestor's sin. What he's referring to is this, is Jesus knew. Not only were they about to kill him, those same religious leaders were gonna hunt down his disciples from town to town. They were gonna beat some of them in the synagogue. They were gonna crucify some of them. They were gonna kill others in different ways. So he knew that. So they kept talking about how righteous they were, but Jesus knew soon enough their hatred would bubble up because out of the abundance of the heart, we always act. What is in here will always eventually come up in our words, in our deeds, with our fists, right? It will come up. So the point is, is we gotta get to the root. Any of you who like to do any gardening or anything like that in here, you know, you don't just cut a weed, right? You don't just cut the top off. You gotta pull the weed up by the root. Because if you don't, it's gonna come back up again. It may take some time, but give it enough time and it will come back up. And it ruins everything around it, right? Sucks the life from everything around it. So you gotta get to the root of the weed. 
Jesus is saying you got to get to the heart. You got to dig down deep and get that ugliness out of there or it's going to come up. And so he looks at the religious leaders and he says, how can you escape hell? That's a rhetorical question. What that means is they can't. There was no escaping hell for these men. Not because Jesus wanted them to go to hell. Bible says it's God's will that none should go to hell, right? It says that in the word. So it's not like he wanted them to go to hell. But he asked them rhetorically, how can you escape hell? And the reason he asked that is they were so prideful. They were so arrogant that they would never say that they were wrong. They would never confess that they had sinned against God. And if we ever reach a point to where we're so arrogant that we will not confess our sin, there is no escape from hell. So God had sent prophets. It says he sent sages. That's the same thing as a philosopher. He sent philosophers. He sent intellectuals like Solomon. God even sent his only son to get the attention of the people, to try to get them to turn around. But they didn't want to. They didn't want to turn around. They're too arrogant. They're too prideful. And so Jesus assured these prideful religious men who were filled with hatred and violence that eventually that hatred and violence is going to come back to get you. He actually meant soon. About 35 years after Jesus said these things to the, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Roman government came in and sacked Jerusalem, just, just wiped it out. That beautiful temple that they put so much stock in, knocked down. All their beautiful homes, knocked down. Their economy, ruined. The Roman Empire came in and leveled Jerusalem. And Jesus was warning them, if you live by violence, you can't be shocked when violent things happen. There's a great story coming up in the next couple of chapters, and I'm ruining it, but it, it, it's such a good story, where, and i got to be careful with this, an unrighteous soldier was coming after the righteous Jesus, and Peter thought that he could stand up for righteousness with violence and a weapon. Sounds like the United States. Picks up a weapon, comes at a soldier, right, who's infringing on his Savior's rights, cuts off his ear, Jesus looks, says, Peter, picks up the ear, sticks it back on. <laughs> Peter, he says, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. We live in an exceptionally violent culture. We live by the sword, but somehow we're constantly shocked when there's violence. People start fighting in the streets. People get shot and killed. People get beat. Homes get broken into, women get taken advantage of, and we step back and we go, how did this happen? Why did my son get in a fight at school? We were watching UFC together. He's in kindergarten. I can't believe he got in a fight. They've been raised on violent video games, listen to violent music. I can't believe there's sexism and violence in our nation against women. All these songs talk about how they're the B word and they're the H word and they're everything else. Why are men treating women like this? Shocking. We live by a sword and when we get cut, we're like, how did this happen? Why are there shootings in schools? Pick on kids and treat them terrible and beat them up in the hallways and we wonder why they pull out a gun. Hmm. There is always a ramification for sin, always. If you're promiscuous and you sleep with a thousand people and you get a sexually transmitted disease, Jesus Christ will forgive you. He will forgive you. He will show you grace and mercy. But you're still going to have to deal with that physical problem. 
If you sleep with a hundred women and you get one of them pregnant, Jesus will forgive you for having sex outside of marriage. You're still gonna have to raise that kid. You're still gonna have to support that kid. If we treat everyone like garbage, Jesus can forgive you, but you're still gonna have to build back, build back the bridges of all the relationships you've ruined. There's always a ramification for the sin. Always, always, always. God will forgive us. God will, will, will save us from his wrath. But there is always a ramification for living by the sword. Always. Let's switch gears. You guys were like, it's about time. <laughs> Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hens for her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. See, your house is left desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. What is happening here is Jesus was mad. If you didn't notice, Jesus was mad. <laughs> Calls people snakes and vipers and you're like whitewashed tombs. He is mad. But at this point, you can almost kind of visualize Jesus dropping his hands and now he's just lamenting. He's sad. What is he sad over? He's sad because the nation where he was born was falling apart. He was sad because the capital city had become corrupt. He was sad because the religious institution had become corrupt. He was sad for the societal state of his home. God doesn't joy. He doesn't find joy in punishing people. I don't believe God finds any joy. Again, like I said earlier, it's God's will that none should perish, none should die. But God loves humanity. God loves humanity even when it has, it's at its worst. And sometimes Jesus has to chastise us. Sometimes he has to correct us. Sometimes he has to let our lives fall apart in order to get our attention. It's 2020. And so many people are going, God, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm trying to get you to look at me. Maybe you lost that job because money was more important to you than me. Maybe you lost those relationships because you valued them more than me. God doing whatever he can to get our attention because he loves us and it breaks his heart when we're not following him. The problem was that the people of God had grown entitled. They had grown arrogant. They had grown self-serving. What the nation wanted is they wanted a savior that did their bidding, right? For selfish ambition. They didn't want Jesus as he came. They wanted Jesus as they had manufactured in their minds. Again, sound familiar, right? 68% of the United States claims to be a follower of Jesus. Only 25% of the United States claims that you have to read the Bible and follow it to be a Christian. Do you know what that says? I want a savior, but I do not want him to tell me what to do. Is this not us? We love the idea of the hippie loving Jesus that turns a blind eye to all the bad things we do and hugs us all the time. We do not like the idea of Jesus Christ as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We do not like the idea of Jesus as a righteous judge. We don't like that Jesus. But Jesus shows us, look at what he says. He says, look, your house is left to you desolate, not because God wants it to be desolate, because you have chosen desolation. Your ways lead to desolation. In the pursuit of self, whole societies lose it all. They lose political integrity. They lose economics. They lose cohesiveness, right? 
they lose everything. In the pursuit of self, a people loses everything. That's what we've seen this year. And so Jesus looks, he looks at his people and he says, your time's running out. Verse 39, he says, some of you are waiting so long to make a decision. You're living for yourself so long that the next time you see me, it's not gonna be good. It's gonna be too late. The next time you see me, right? We talked about this last week that we either bow our knee voluntarily or involuntarily. Jesus is saying, because you haven't willingly bowed your knee, the next time you see me, I'm gonna force you down. I'm gonna force you down. The Bible tells us that we're not promised longevity. I don't know if you guys know this. We're not promised tomorrow. But we are promised that we're gonna be held accountable for the time that we did have. We're not promised forever. We're promised that we are going to be held accountable for what time we did have on this earth. So let's talk about time for a second. The wisest man that has ever lived, besides Jesus Christ on earth, right? The wisest human that has ever existed. Solomon wrote this, do not brag about tomorrow because you don't know what it's gonna bring. We live in a culture now of, and I'm not picking on the rich, but billionaires and multimillionaires and celebrities who are so attractive and so popular and we have so many followers on social media and we're this and that and they, they, they live like they're going to live forever. And Solomon says, be careful, don't brag on those things because you don't know what's gonna happen. James, the brother of Jesus says, your life is like a vapor when it's cold outside and you breathe out and it comes out and it just dissipates. The Bible says that's like your life. Let me put it in real terms. There was a, an adult film star in the 1990s, early 90s. Her name was Savannah. In fact, she dated uh, Axl Rose for a while and Greg Allman from the Allman Brothers. And she made her living by, by her looks, right? In her early 20s. One night in her brand new Corvette that some rock star bought her, she had too much to drink, was on her way home, got in a wreck, her face hit the steering wheel, cut her open from, from one side of her face to the other. She lived for a minute. She went home and saw that what she had put all of her stock in, her face, was now gone. And she put a shotgun in her mouth and took her life. You don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring. That's why Jesus says, put your faith in something that's eternal, not something that can be taken, not something that can be robbed from you, right? Your life is like a vapor. Don't brag about tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring. So we have to talk about us. If we're not promised tomorrow, what are we doing today? What are we doing today? What are we doing with the moments that we have right now? Are we seizing this life? Do you guys understand? We get one shot, one shot, one shot at this life. My, my 11 year old's only gonna be 11 one time, right? I only have today with my wife. I don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring, God forbid. But what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing with our relationship with the Lord? I'm not trying to be mean. A couple of weeks ago when Mike was teaching, I was standing out here by the coffee nook for this service, guys. I was standing right out there. And right when the doors were open, instead of taking communion, I see about 70% of you guys shoot right out the door. Because there's a football game on. Or because there's a yard to mow. Or because there's lunch to eat. Listen, I got nothing against any of those things. What are we doing in this moment? You hold in your hand communion that represents the body and blood of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Man, I'm glad the Titans are having a great season. It's exciting to watch. But if you miss the first quarter, it's not gonna be a big deal. If you miss this opportunity to, to commune with your Savior, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. We have this opportunity to take this thing and be reminded why we have breath in our lungs and blood in our veins. Reminded of the grace of our Savior that even while we were sinners, he died on a cross for me. Nine hours on a hunk of wood, he bled and died for me. And I gotta beat those people to lunch. I got things to do. What are we doing with our time right now? Because what we do now echoes forever and ever and ever. What are we doing? And is God trying to get our attention? Jesus looked at the, the hypocritical religious leaders and he said, it's your legalism, it's your hypocrisy, it's your hatred. Now, we may not fall into those three traps, but what is the sin that God is trying to expose in us? All this time alone, right, that we've had this year, there was months and months and months where everyone was at home. What did you learn about yourself? Was God trying to point out that you have these problems and that God wants to identify these things in you and eradicate, pull up by the root those weeds? It's not about what Donald Trump or Joe Biden or my boss or the governor or what. It's not about everyone else. Let's talk about us as individuals, me. What does God want to point out in me? What is God saying? Whoa, 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 Corey, don't do it. Go that way, not this way. Don't go that way. What is the woe in Corey's life, in your life? But the way to find that is we have to be humble and we have to find ourselves on our knees saying, God, expose to me. Maybe I'm blind to my own faults. Maybe I'm blind to my own sin. Show it to me. Examine my heart, Lord. But in order to pray that prayer, listen, we have to want to walk in step with Jesus more than anything else. More than culture more than politics, more than what is popular, more than fashion, more than success. We have to want to be in line with Jesus the most. Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto you. That's what our heart has to be. But I ask myself this year, I keep pulling my hair out this year and I'm like, my God, what is it gonna take? What is it gonna take for us as your people to step back and say, we surrender. What is it going to take? What's it going to take? Is it going to take an economic collapse? Is it going to take people dying in the streets more? Is it going to take losing our jobs? Is it going to take famine and what is the most prosperous nation on the planet? What is it going to take? What is it going to take for us to step back and say, God, here's the positive thing. I swore it was coming, right? The positive thing is this, God doesn't shake us because he hates us. God shakes us because he loves us. Maybe you lost that job because God knew you were gonna have an affair with that guy in the cubicle next to you. Maybe God moved you to another area because maybe your success was becoming an idol in your life. Maybe God had to rattle the economy because as a people we've become greedy and materialistic. God loves us. God doesn't hate us. 
God doesn't delight in punishing us, but as a good, perfect parent, a father that he is, sometimes he has to chastise us, correct us. That's because he loves us. There are some of us in this room, we would have loved to have been disciplined by our dads, but we never got it because our dads were too busy doing something else. Anyone else resonate with that? And we would have loved to have had a father step in and say, that's the wrong way, son. Because a good parent puts their child in the right direction. And God goes to great lengths to get us to look at him because he knows that if it's up to us, we're going to go a bad direction. We're going to drive off the cliff. I prayed this whole week. I said, God, how in the world do you want me to end this? What do you want me to say? And I've never audibly heard God speak, but I felt it so strong. I was in my office. I sat there and I looked at my screen and I typed out this, this, this last thing. Some of you in this room just need to hear that God loves you. Your parents may not. Your siblings may not. You may not have any friends. If you don't have anyone else on this earth, I want to tell you the God that created the earth absolutely adores you. Loves you, loves you, loves you. Not only loves you, he wants to live with you forever. Jesus looked at his disciples before he sent them out like sheep to the slaughter. And he looked at his disciples and he said, listen to me, in my father's house are many rooms. And if that weren't true, I wouldn't have told you. He was saying to his disciples, look, it's gonna be rough, but on the other side, you're gonna be with me in paradise. We don't talk about heaven enough. We somehow think that this earth is permanent and it is not. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. Go back to the very back of your Bible, right? Revelation 20, 21, 22. Read how beautiful that is. Where Jesus says, look, I make everything new. He wipes out the universe and he wipes out the earth. If we haven't wiped it out by then. If he wipes out the earth, builds a new heaven, universe, builds a new earth. This beautiful city comes down and rests on the new earth. It says that the gates of the city will always be open for eternity. And Jesus says, come on in. And John is invited in. That's the guy that wrote Revelation. And as he walks through the city, the pearly gates and the streets of gold and the beautiful stones, there's this river that goes up through the middle right into the city center and these trees that produce 12 different kinds of fruit on both sides of the river. The tree of life is in the center, right? And you see the throne of God and it says that there's no night, there's no darkness, there's no need for, for lighting, there's no shadows, there's no need for a sun, because the light of God fills every single corner. It says there'll be no tears. There'll be no more hunger or thirsting, no more division or hatred. It says he'll wipe all those things away. I just want to tell you, it, I think it's going to get worse. I think the world's going to get worse. But that doesn't change how good God is. That doesn't change how much God loves us. And I think we need to be reminded that this is not our permanent home, that God has something better for us. He has a relationship with us now that can hold us over until he comes back for his bride. And we live in perfection with him forever. 
I don't, know for, I don't know who it's for. Maybe it's for me. But I think someone today simply needed to hear, God loves you. God loves you. Would you bow your heads, please? If you are in this room and uh, maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus, or maybe you do, but maybe you have some doubts, you're skeptical, you're struggling, whatever the case may be. Up here on my right, your left, Pastor Isaac is up here. He'd love to talk with you, okay? Any questions you may have, you're not gonna offend him, you're not gonna throw him off. If you're watching online, info at experiencecc.com. If you send us an email, we'll get back to you this coming week, okay? There's also men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, anything, please let them pray for you. And then the last thing, and guys, I didn't want to guilt you with this. I just wanted to challenge you. You have communion in your hands. You don't have to stay for her for 40 minutes groveling on the floor. But take a couple of minutes, take a moment, drink that juice, eat that bread, and be reminded how much does God love you? God loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever that will believe in him will not die but have everlasting life Jesus Christ came and died the most violent death imaginable to pay for all of the evil that we have done. That's what that communion just reminds you of. Please don't miss that opportunity. The Bible says we have to repent for our sin. Don't miss the opportunity to leave this place clean, forgiven. Father, Lord, I love you, God. I love this church. Lord, if I, being the flawed man that I am, can love this church as much as I do, you being the perfect heavenly father, you love the men and women in this room so much that we can't even understand it. God, I pray that they feel that. I pray that they understand it just a little bit. I don't care what they've done. I don't care the mistakes they've made. First and foremost, God, I just want your love to touch their heart. Let them know, God, that you see them and you know them and you're aware of what's going on in their lives, God, and you care. Lord, let us turn from our selfish ways and our destructive patterns, God. Lord, let us turn to you, God. Lord, bless everyone in this room. Bless everyone watching, God. Bless their children and their children's children and their family and their friends, God, and their schools and their, their workplaces, God. Lord, bless them, God, and keep them strong and healthy, Lord, and dependent on you. Father, we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys very much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you, guys.